There we are. 40 stories. That's your lot. Many thanks to anyone who managed to get through them all. It's time to go. Will my last story be about fluffy bunnies living happily ever after? No. Just the usual. Mental illness, dysfunctional families, and pain. Enjoy. The Sorrow of Shame I look out of the window of the plane as it takes off from London City Airport, dives into the grey sky and turns to head northwest towards the Irish Sea and Dublin, my destination. Over the years I have flown back and forth between London and Dublin countless times. I am going to visit my mother, who is now 86 years old and has developed dementia with its attendant worries for all concerned. I am also, I suppose, going to see my brother, who has battled with his own mental health problems for 40 years, but who has always lived with our mother, often promising, threatening or planning his departure, but never following through. They are codependent, or have become so, enmeshed in their shared neuroses and fears. The caring roles, to some extent, have simply flipped, and my brother is now the responsible one, despite his limitations, which are legion. And here I go again, the younger, more successful child, disliked and admired in equal measure, flying in to sort them out. Except that I have really no idea what to do. I am awash with conflicting emotions that churn about inside me and create a background state of permanent, low-level anxiety. Since our father died ten years ago, I have been the one in charge. The parent figure for the compromised lives that awaken to their incomprehensible terrors every day in South Dublin. I have my own life, of course, and in the throes of my resentments, I declaim this to myself... Look at all the wonderful people, noted in the news every day, who die before their hour, making no unreasonable claim upon the time, the strength, or the mental health of anyone. And then there is my mother and my brother, who have been sinking for so long into a depthless well of incompetence and decline. I cannot bear it, but bear it I must. I am going to sort them out. No, I am going to sit and listen to observe and despair, to make lists and do the shopping. I am going to collect prescriptions and take my mother to medical appointments, to endure the neighbours, the members of the church choir and other assorted ex-friends and acquaintances who berate me for not doing enough, for hardly being there, for not intervening sooner, for not sorting things out. But no, that's not fair, is it? Because they are only doing their best only voicing concerns, only sharing the sorrow that comes with watching someone lose their grip on reality and slip into the past, into the jumbled world of cognitive impairment. The sun pours at the thick clouds and gets a brief look in, enough to glint off Dublin Bay briefly and to enable me to register for the umpteenth time the landmarks of South Dublin as they unfurl themselves. The plane is descending into the ever-grey mist that hangs over the city and all the twinkling glories are lost. It thuds down unceremoniously on the runway. Blasé passengers have long since ceased to clap when they arrive safely. Any celebration would be a cover for the guilt of travel anyway. And guilt is the overriding sensation I feel when I touch down. 
Here I am, back again, guiltier than ever. Hello, Ireland. Hello, mother. Hello, brother. Get ready to be sorted out. I fly through passport control. The man behind the counter barely gives me a glance, and I am ushered out into the full legality of arrival in Ireland. I catch the air coach. When we dip into the port tunnel, I force my mind out of its daydream and onto the pressing matter of the visit itself. Your mother rang us the other day, and it was so concerning. She wasn't making any sense. She was trying to speak French. I hate to say it, I hate to say it, but that is a dysfunctional household. Are you sure your brother is up to looking after your mother? Sure doesn't he have his own, well, limitations, bless him. Could you not come over more often? There's a lot that needs to be organised. I mean, is she getting enough to eat? Wasn't she dehydrated when they took her to hospital? Are you sure she's taking the right medication? There are boxes of the stuff all over the house. How would anyone know what's right? Have they stopped the cleaner going in or what? Your brother doesn't seem to notice that the place needs cleaning. They won't talk to me. Something to do with data protection. And I don't think your brother is asking the right questions. Do they actually know what's wrong with her? Do you not think she needs to see a specialist? Those have been the questions, piling up. Those are the issues I will try to address. We've slipped into this permanent state of crisis. Was I so inattentive that this level of anxiety had to build up in the friends and the neighbours? And beneath it all the accusation that I have been neglectful. I have not been a dutiful enough daughter. Not like all the superhero children that populate the lives of everyone else. My mother has reminded me of this often enough. Mrs. Furlong's son comes over every Saturday and takes his mother out to Finnegan's for lunch, and her daughter, who lives in Paris, goes on holiday with them both, once a year, to the south of France. Well, I tried once, taking my mother to Paris for a long weekend. A long weekend of complaint, mostly about the food, and the fact that the French insisted on speaking their own language. And here she is now, trying to do what? Fool her neighbours into thinking she's bilingual? There's fury and admonishment at the bottom of that derangement, you can be sure. And that's a problem for me, always has been a problem. How to distinguish the real from the imagined slight. How to shake off the suspicion that this fall into incoherence, this rambling, desperate, labile display, is unaffected. Of course, it is illogical to feel this way, but the roots of conflict have burrowed into my cells. They wriggle and scratch in the ventricles of my heart and the capillaries of my brain. And I see the pattern, the repeating pattern. My mother's interpretation of life's accidentals as unjust fate belabouring her with sorrows. Well, this is what I myself am now recreating with my deep, unspoken, except to myself, imputation. You're putting it on. You're faking. You're just doing this to get at me. I am my mother's daughter, no? Thank you, I say, as I step out of the coach, down onto the pavement, and dart across the road, with my lightest of backpacks slung nonchalantly across my shoulder. It contains merely a few changes of underwear and the bottle of wine that I always buy for my mother, though I am fully aware that alcohol, medication and dementia are probably an unhappy mix. The brother sometimes buys her gin and makes a bottle last for six months. But wine is expected, and it seems cruel to deny her a real pleasure. How far is it to the sea? 
the old joke my mother loves as a denizen of Glenageary. About two million euro. Endless hordes of the prosperous and pecunious have settled here. How is it possible for there to be so many well-heeled folk with their multi-car households and burgeoning families, all so healthy-looking, all running 5k a day and buying quinoa and caviar in Caverstons? Sure, haven't they worked for it? Haven't they avoided tax with the best possible advice for as long as it takes to amass a little fortune? And who would begrudge them? Isn't the Irish working day long and hard? Is it? What would I know? A blow-in like me, who never heard the call of return. Here it is, my mother's road, no more dallying. I have arrived. The crunch on the gravel is my last independence for now. Look at the car, the scrape along the side, the missing hubcap. My mother is still driving. Is it conscionable? I can't deal with everything. If there is an accident, it will be at slow speed and low impact. Let driving alone for now. I take a deep breath on the doorstep, and although I have a key, I ring the bell. I can hear them inside. They are arguing about who should answer the door. That makes me feel good. They know I am coming. What price a rush of excited greeting? After a pause, my brother comes shambling up to open the door. Hello, sis. He trundles back to the living room to take his position by the TV. I am left to close the front door by myself and adjust to the immediate blast of central heating on Max and the sound of the TV blaring. Neither brother nor mother are deaf. They merely turn the volume up to place a barrier between them and then they shout over the top of it. My mother looks at me with total surprise. I didn't know you were coming. How lovely. Of course you knew. I've been telling you all day she's coming. Well, she's here now. It doesn't matter. And my mother stands up comes forward to hug me, and then, as always, backs out at the last moment and returns to her seat. Turn that off, will you please? The remote is there, there by your side. What? Where is it? There, it's there, look! Jesus, it's there! Ah, so it is, right. How does this work? Oh, there we go. And silence briefly reigns. To hold on to that, to remember there can be silence, my brother begins to rock slowly to and fro. Is he that anxious, that restless already? He can bear little enough of my presence, of anyone's presence, really. He still works, though, three days a week now for Dublin Corporation, in, as he self-deprecatingly puts it, the department of very little consequence. Bless them, mind, for keeping him in employment all these years. The last hospital admission was twenty-five years ago. Many ups and downs since then, but not enough to be dragged back to the bin. His words... Medication comes and goes. My mother frequently used to ask me to try and persuade him to take the pills. He's so much better on than off, she'd say. But what right do I have to interfere when I'm living in another country, and at least it is my brother who has put up with the relentless barrage of mother's judgments day in, day out. Now he sits in his chair, and I can see the lines of anxiety that have been chiselled into his face. He looks so much older than his years. He is weathered beyond the norm. All that walking out of doors and no moisturiser, that's what it is. But there's more to it as well. Look at the pain, the sheer raw anguish on his features. It never relents. He is always carrying around this turmoil. Whether he is sitting here straining to be friendly, at least for five minutes before it all overwhelms him and he'll need to be up and out, or being dressed down at work, 
or simply interacting in any way with the rest of humanity, this dread and torment, this suffering and hurt, is etched onto his soul. He cannot shift it. The marks are indelible on his face. He turns to the world with a silent scream, always. And thinking this, a flood of pity brims over inside me. Poor man, to endure a life like that. It doesn't, needless to say, make him any less irritating. He tries to mumble a few questions to ask me about my life, but he has no conception of my life. There is no room in his head for anything other than a furious, corrosive contemplation of himself. He walks, that's what he does, in all weathers, alone, and occasionally, to be fair, in walking groups, where the wind and the rain howl loud enough to render conversation impossible. He has climbed every hill in Ireland and walked every right of way. He knows them all, from the Mam Turks to the mountains of Morn, from Wheelray to Errigal. And what did he think when he stood on those peaks? What revelations came? What epiphanies? Nothing, only I'm cold and lonely and it never changes. My life is cold and lonely. And inaccessible, so I imagine. But he says so little. Would you like a cup of tea? Yes, please. And me too. Tea is shortly served. In filthy cups, but served. And a biscuit. One thing to be said, there is never a shortage of biscuits. Of proper food, yes. Of nourishment, of health. But biscuits are plentiful. Sipping his tea, my brother looks at me, and then away, and then back again. How's work? Oh, don't be asking, same as ever, worse. But you're only three days now, yes? Three days of hell. That bad? Always that bad. He drains his cup and goes to his room. A few minutes later he returns in his anorak and boots. I'm just going out for a walk. There are ready meals in the fridge. No need to save any for me. The door is closed quietly behind him, and the boot steps on the gravel take him away until God knows when. So that's it, then, the limit of my brother's tolerance. Three's a crowd, is it? Only my mother now to talk with. Still, I need to know how things are, how bad things are. And my mother talks, slumping into speech as if collapsing from a height. I listen out for the ticks and the quirks, and then for the signs and symptoms, and then for the repetitions and the glowing embers of her old self spitting beneath the surface, refusing to be put out. It would have been wonderful at any time to have a conversation with my mother. But conversation has never been the best way to describe our interaction. Punctuated monologue, atonal aria with minimal accompaniment, lecture with truncated questions. You have to satirise to survive. So, to the old familiar themes. Life has been hard. It has been unfair. Your brother should take his medication. Everything is going to the dogs. I haven't been well. Something has been happening, but whatever it was, I'm better now. Whatever it was, it wasn't my fault. Whatever it was, was forced on me by your neglect, and by his neglect, and the fact that I have suffered. And both of you have been, have always been, terrible disappointments. That's the gist of it, but of course what words there are are jumbled, and many of them are missing. Aphasia is prominent. It's a book of regret and anger and self-pity, only now it's deeply encrypted, and I am one of the few with access to the code. For how long, though? That's the first alarming decision. There needs to be a plan. 
not just for now, but for when things get worse and make no mistake, they're going to get worse. And whether I like it or not, and I most emphatically do not, I am responsible. That is, I cannot evade responsibility. Whether it's the voice of my own conscience or the imagined voices of the judges twitching behind the curtains on this road, I have been named the executor of disintegration. My mother rattles on, but I'm making a list of things to do. The paperwork, the money, the bills, the unopened letters, the food, the medication, the specialists, the cleanliness, the garden, yes, don't forget the garden, the car, the insurance, the light bulbs, home care, yes, but when and how to get the brother to agree, how to get my mother to agree. She was poorly, but everything is fine now. Oh yes, everything is fine. And then what if there comes a time when a nursing home is needed? How does that work with the brother still living in the house? When I look at the length of the list and my mother weeps, stops weeping, keeps talking, laughs, stops laughing, I feel the panic rise inside me. But I am a good organiser. I know I will sort it out. It's not the tasks, really. No, that's not it at all. Another silence. I know I should inhabit this absence of the voice, relish it, relax into it, enjoy the brief pause, the small gift of peace, but I cannot. For although my mother is now staring absently into space, I have no option but to observe her, to map out the way gesture and expression play within decline. The horrible experiment of dementia is ongoing. It cannot be reversed or avoided. I must bear witness to the struggle within my mother between salvaging the past, cohering it and preserving it, and letting it fragment, letting it crumble into a jumbled assortment of smithereens, juxtaposed without order, meaningless with pain. And so the silence provides not relief, but sorrow. And sorrow accuses as much as it pities. Eons pass, and my mother begins to speak again. She is mumbling. She is frustrated by her inability to find the correct word. She gesticulates to no avail. It will not come. She is weighed down by the cruelty of words that will not cooperate. But here's the flicker of an idea. She will put on a CD. We will listen to music. We will compensate for circular and aimless language with familiar sounds. I help my mother select a disc from the higgledy-piggledy heap piled beside the little mini-system that I bought for my parents fifteen years ago. It is still going, a strange exception to the built-in obsolescence of machines. We choose Gershwin, Rhapsody in Blue, and a wave of orchestral jazz fills the room and provides, indeed it does, a respite from too much thinking. My mother begins to hum along. Why is it that I could never abide my mother's singing? Why is it that I can afford no forgiveness now, when my mother is so clearly incapacitated for the irritations of the past? Because they remain... They parade themselves in front of me. All the habits line up and demand denunciation. But I sit passively, biting my tongue. Slowly, as the music rises and falls, I hew out a practical plan. I order the tasks and identify the days on which they will be completed. I impose purpose and structure on my visit, and hold in check, for now, the emotions that roil. Eventually, after the music and the heating and the serving of the ready meal, the evening closes in, and my brother returns from his wanderings. He is bedraggled and whippet-thin in his dripping rainwear. 
Did you have a good time? It was okay. You got caught in the rain. It usually happens. We've eaten, like you said. My mother interjects. He needs to eat. He needs to eat. Stop fussing about me. Skin and... What's it? Skin and... Skin and... She is always fussing about me. Later, he sits with us. The TV gets turned on and then turned up every five minutes at my mother's request so that now we must shout at each other as per the ritual. He has three cream crackers. That's all, it seems. And he nibbles away at them only when I and my mother are not looking. He is reluctant, afraid even, or embarrassed, perhaps, to eat in front of other people. Somehow, after the TV is mercifully silenced and my brother has managed to dispense the nighttime medication with much huffing and puffing and rifling through drawers, a process to which I must introduce some clarity tomorrow, somehow, unbelievably, the day draws to a close. The long watch is done and everyone can shuffle off to bed. Impossible to credit that sitting and doing nothing can be so totally exhausting. The bed has been badly made, as always. The room is cluttered. The air is stuffy. Before I get into the narrow single bed, I open a window and let in the cool night breeze. Then I lie in the darkness and prepare for sleeplessness. I have been expecting this. I know this bed, have slept here many times. I've always found it difficult to get comfortable. My mind always whirls lying here, waiting for the sounds of the house to slow to that contracting crackle of stone and wood. But now, though I try to resist, my ear listens out for the inevitable rising in the night of both mother and brother, the soft padding of bare feet across the carpet, the botched attempt to close the bathroom door quietly, the trickle of piss, the flush, the opening and closing of the door, and always, and this is only my mother, a hovering for a few minutes outside her daughter's bedroom. Why does she do this? Why has she always done this? What is she hoping to hear? What crime is she going to uncover? What act does she really think her middle-aged daughter is going to be caught in the middle of? So I hold my breath, resolve not to move a muscle, and then finally my mother returns to her own bedroom and I am free to attempt to sleep once again. But it's hopeless. I stare at the ceiling and try to empty my mind. My mother is a frail old woman who is fading into the dimness. Why cannot I just endure and accept that? I have been coming here, lying here in this bed, repeating the same thoughts over and over, caught like my mother in a loop of misgiving. Is it therapeutic, really, to admit to the worst feelings? Sometimes I hate my mother, and I hate my brother. Why do I hate them? Is it for anything other than their continued existence? Have they scarred me so badly that I must lie here and seethe? I am angry at myself, angry for the anger that lies in me, and also resentful of the inevitability of these feelings that cannot be held back. Things will progress. My mother's mind will crumble. My brother's mental health will fail. And I will attempt to do enough, enough to convince myself that I am doing my best, enough to deceive, enough to endure. And it is sad, and it is impossible, 
and the morning will bring more, more of the sorrow of shame. Thank you.